This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 326 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, and this is another GABF Gold episode where we focus on gold medal winning beers and how they're brewed by some of the most interesting, creative, and technically adept brewers in the country who have the medals to prove it. Um, in this episode, in the second half of the episode, we're going to talk to Jeremy Clays from Protagonist out in uh, North Carolina who won gold for their Cal-El Cezanne this year. Um, but first joining me in the, for this first segment of the podcast is Jason Zumbrunnen, founder of Ratio Brewing in Denver, Colorado, who won gold for King of Carrot Flowers in the field beer category. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. All right. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be able to do this in person. I uh, just I saw you Just saw you last, was it last week? Yeah, it was last week for our, uh, our brewery accelerator here in Denver. And uh, here we are again talking quickly about carrot beer, of all things. An <laughs> unusual topic, again, something we've never, ever talked about in 325 <laughs> yeah. previous episodes of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. But here we are. We're going to talk about how to brew a compelling field beer, finding a way to make a beer with such an earthy ingredient. Uh, you know, has its own particular challenges, um, but they have found a way and found a way to, to make it interesting um, so that it not just it doesn't just win medals, but also uh, has a regular place out here in the tap room where locals enjoy the beer. And you even package that beer and put it out there uh, from time to time, too. Before we start the conversation, for years, G&D Chillers has chilled the beers you love, partnering with 3,000-plus breweries across the country. They are proud of the cool partnerships they've built, offering 24-7 service and support. G&D builds with non-proprietary parts, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. G&D's in-house engineering crew have been piping breweries, wineries, and distilleries for over 30 years. They offer free piping design and consultation with the sale of every chiller they build. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is sponsored by BSG Distributors of Gambrinus Malting, Canada's original small batch artisanal malt house. Located in Armstrong, BC, Gambrinus Malting combines European-influenced malting practices with the finest barley, wheat, and rye to produce some of the finest Canadian malts available. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com slash to explore their full line of traditionally crafted malts and infuse your next brew with the character of the Okanagan Valley and Monashi Range. And scheduling freight carriers should be the last thing on a brewer's mind, so why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard has partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your flavored craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes, to get started, head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. All right, Jason, let's talk quickly about uh, your path through the brewing world. Uh, um, what what uh, you know steps did you take along your brewing career uh, before you ended up launching Ratio right here in Denver? Yeah, you bet. Um, I'll keep this short, but I'm from Colorado originally. Went to school, uh, CU Boulder, just down, down the street, really, and just fortuitous there of how early some of the great breweries of the country were and didn't realize it. And it took a, not only just into beer in general in college, but took a food science course through my engineering and ended up at Wilderness Pub. And so we had uh, Walnut Brewery, Wilderness Pub, Boulder Beer. Some of these early where we were having craft beer, Buff Gold was a, Buffalo Gold was a beer, delicious kind of golden ale. 
um, and got to learn about the brewing process there through food science, through school, and just didn't even realize how good we had it with these craft beers. Not a lot of IPAs yet um, in that world, but already was drinking it and started homebrewing there, just really awful beers. Finally made one good stout with my uh, roommate, but that was kind of the end of it, except that I was, you know, enjoyed craft beer that I didn't even know was craft beer then, but it wasn't really till touring in a band. So after college, we kind of all got jobs and then I'll quit those jobs and went touring. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, I was in a punk rock band. And so we started touring the country and got a chance to go tour all over Europe and Japan. And I think there, especially touring. What was the band? It was called the Fairlanes. Okay. So I think my real love of beer came from touring for two reasons. I got to try some beers from all over the country and sure, all over sure. the world. And then also just beer with live music and at these shows is just such a great pairing. And that in particular maybe drove my ultimate interest of starting a brewery is is how great beer can tie into these um, real world experiences. So it's not just having a great beer. It's like where you have these beers was my interest of maybe wanting to get into it. So. Um, so lived in California for about 10 years after touring and working in film, but I actually had a huge backyard. So I started brewing again and like legit started buying and building a real kind right. of home, professional homebrew, if you will. And then started getting into this idea. San Diego was booming with, uh, stone and all these, and these IPAs were coming out. I'd never, you know, was unbelievable. These West coast and racer five, um, out of there. And then it was hearing of Dale's pale ale being put into a can and, you know, California and LA at the time, you know, didn't Colorado didn't make the news much out there except for when this canned, you know, pale ale, which was really an IPA came out and it was the talk of the town. And that was like, wow, what's going on in Colorado with brewing again? I knew it was big, but all of a sudden that made bigger news. I think that was this inspiration to get back, maybe move to Denver. Early 2000s, I think, what? Three, 2003, yeah, when yeah, it would have been right there yeah. somewhere in mid uh, 2000s when I was in Santa Monica at a, a bar called the Library, and they had this, and everyone freaked out. And uh, then it was like, could could I get into brewing? Could I start a brewery? I, and it was already was starting to get past the point of just home brewers, maybe just you know, hey, wing it, open up a little shack. We, I knew it was competitive, right. not only in San Diego, but if we were moving back to Colorado, so. Decided to go back to brewing school um, first. So went to Siebel in Chicago mm-hmm. and then Domans over in Munich, Germany right. for moving out here to Colorado. So then fast forward, got a job right at Wincoop Brewing right away out of sure, the gate and sure. base level job. And it was great because brewing school was all technical and perfect, right? You read about pump curves and when things work perfectly. And then I walked into a 20-year-old brewery right. that was duct, essentially duct taped together. You know, well, you're standing on a ladder history. to hand, uh, you know, paddle the the mash and, oh yeah, no. It's, yep. Uh, and, you know, all manual, right. barely if the gauges worked occasionally. And so there's a lot of uh, that manual manual skilled and how to fix things. So that was real world. It was great. It's I it's a funny, in fact, Bass who brews for you now here at Ratio. Uh I remember going down for a brew day for the Clab Fest years and years ago at Wincoop with the band Real Big Fish. Oh yeah. And yeah. uh you know, brewed a, a uh a collab beer at Wincoop and got to got to watch all of that very manual process in that old uh, that was right classic. before they uh they've upgraded since then they okay. finally put in a whole new system but uh yeah there was a slogan there if, if it's not leaking how do you know it's working <laughs> <laughs> that was true my first day of even transferring a beer of course you know it's like it's leaking out of the fermenter sure, door sure. and you know 
Andy Hedbrew at the time was got a like a mallet and a screwdriver, and I was like, "Wow, okay, I did not learn this in school." <laughs> it's but, it was funny watching Hickenlooper, uh, uh, you know, at the uh, the welcome for GABF this year, talking about those old days. Uh, you know, it's amazing to watch a governor of this or former governor of the state of of Colorado. Um, you know, coming out of the brewing world and finding that kind oh, yeah. of success out there in politics. Um, what a cool thing, you know, but telling some of those early stories, but actually seeing that system that, I mean, it, you know, some of it was ahead of its, its time. It had a grain kind of a elevator to out yeah. of the mill room, out of the basement. So some things it was like, I don't know who even built this. And it right. was real, that was well thought out, um, over undersized on everything else. Cause they didn't know that people were going to start brewing these big alcoholic IPAs. Sure, sure. So everything was designed for like 4% beers. <laughs> Um, but then, so I wanted a little more technical. And so right. I took a job. I got a job brewing at AC Golden inside of Coors. And that was exactly that. It switched way back to being able to use the labs and the expertise of everyone and Coors and how, and, and a lot of lager expertise. Right. I brewed there for about three and a half years before finally getting business plan together and opening Ratio Beer Works. In 2015, we opened to the public. Cool. So what's the idea behind Ratio? There's a, there is a creative drive here for those that are listening but can't see it. Um, yep. It's a very visual, bright, bold, modern, urban brewery. Um, art plays into it. Music in that part of your background um, feeds into this as well. Um, and that all There's a, a very aesthetic point of view to the way you do things. That's right. There's two reasons for that. Back to with music, my other partner now in it, Scott, Scott Kaplan, and I both met through music at CU. He was a business student. I was an engineer, different grades too. So we would have never crossed in school, but we crossed through music. And even with touring and all that, um, he's younger than me. So on one mini tour, he actually went and roadied with us for a little bit on one loop. But so we really kind of bonded over where beer bonds people together through these other shared events. And in our case, it was music, playing live music. So from there, we never really lost that. And we really love that idea of how to use beer to bond communities together. So we really go, went back to what we knew, which for, was music, people making art, just makers and doers in general with creative processes. And kind of that analog, how do, you, how do you tie people back together through hopefully a great product that you're making, which is beer. And beer's done that for you know thousands of years. So how did that start to translate into, I mean, it translates into the visuals here, translates even into names. There's definitely music inspiration for yep. your beer names, you know, but when it comes to the, the beers themselves, you know, how did, how did, uh, you know, you figure out where your you know sweet spot was going to be for the beers that you make? That's a great question too. You know, when we were doing our business plans, early two thousands, Colorado was known. It was almost like the the Colorado style was turning into everything bigger and bolder. So even Dale's Pale Ale that I mentioned, by any standard, if you look it up in the guide, should be an IPA, right? It's like 60-something BUs. It's like six-plus percent alcohol. It's an IPA, right? right? If you were to throw it. But that was kind of the motto back then. You, you know, we have our Godfather Brewery here in town, Great Divide. I mean, everything was big and bold and alcoholic. Avery, sure, all sure. these delicious Yeti, beers. Hercules, yeah. right, you know. So I, I love them all, but one differentiation back to this idea of where we had it and, you know, with live music or things like that, or even if you're just sitting on a patio, was this idea we did consciously think we, we probably want to have more sessionable style beers. And this is back then before now it's actually kind of full loop, especially with loggers coming back in. So it was definitely a thought point of having a few... Um, lower that alcohol on a few back to traditional. So like our Saison Dear You, which was one of our first flagships, you know, it's only five, five some percent. Um, we were really inspired by a lot like Tank 7, 
um, Colette out of Great Divide, sure. but these are seven, eight percent alcohol beers, right? You have one of those on a hot day and you're, you're buzzed or you might be going home. We wanted one that you could sit, you know, have three, three beers out on the patio and you're still okay. So we, we, and we wanted some classic styles, but maybe with some modern twists was our early thought of it. Um, which is wild why we're talking today about a really weird wild beer because that was not our MO of starting the brewery. Sure, sure, sure. But there definitely was some of this, you know, kind of, you know, quasi Northern European influence, you know, definitely a little more Saison, but not that kind of Abbey style, you know, uh, triple quad, you know, kind of big Belgian approach and much yeah. more kind of flavorful ester driven, but smaller beer. The, the Saison's a perfect one for us, which um, we, I know the Saison person before, and this was our first Saison that ever won award. We got a silver at um, JBF with Dear You, right behind Tank 7 in that American Amero Belgio category. Sure, sure. And, um, but that one, the, the twist on that, it's a really classic Saison base recipe. I mean, it's over 50% wheat. Yeah. It started at 60% wheat, wow, so wow. it's a tougher beer to louder for sure. But maybe it's closer to 55 now. But, um, but we use 100% Citra. Um, hmm. hops in there. So that was kind of our take on that was doing a really classic Saison. We use the French Saison that goes much drier yeah. and a little bit citrusy with the earthy, but less of the bubble gum of that traditional Belgian. And, um, but with that, with the, the yeast profile, that Citra was just the, the cool little twist on it without going wacky or wild. I just thought it complemented it mm -hmm. already instead of going with kind of a noble hop that would traditionally, or not even much hop character at all, which is traditional Saison. That's why that'll never win in a traditional Saison <laughs> sure, category. Sure. That's to win in the Amero, Amero Belgio yeah. uh, kind of category. Sure. Um, you know, how do you select or choose Citra specifically for that? Or are you just, uh, um, you know, or is there a character that you're looking for out of Citra that fits in Saison? And how do you kind of tuck it into that beer? I know we're off topic now oh, talking yeah, about right. Saison, but I, 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 let's let's go with it while we're uh, – I'm, I'm just curious about that. Well, I think like you said, I think we wanted to highlight part of the yeast structure of that French Saison strain that people use to usually dry yeah. finish out their beers. And it's a diastaticus, so it can go really dry. Um, but that already, to me, had a, cit a citrusy level to it. I know a lot of people get some earthy notes as well. Yeah. Um, so it already was there in the character. Mm. Uh, when we first tried the beers, I don't, it's, so it's a, a dry hop on that beer too. Yeah. Small, small dry hop. So it's not meant to overpower. Right. Um, but yeah, it was truly complimenting. So we were just looking for a good American citrusy kind of fruity and not, not uh, dank or anything like that, right. you know, that style hop. So that, you know, at the time. Citra was really just coming up. I mean, it already was a popular right. hop, but right. now it's like a American classic, right? And for good reasons. Sure, it's such a it's such a great um, hop for that reason. Doesn't give off a lot of other funky flavors typically. Right, definitely has some of that flexibility in it too. If you can, uh, you know, yeah. push it between styles here, and not not just an IPA hop. Well, let's let's talk about carrot beer yeah. because that's a, that is a weird one, and maybe it's a little bit of different out of your mainstream of beers. Um, but it's interesting and, uh, you know, finding these unique things is what makes my job fun. Before we talk about that, AccuBrew now monitors specific gravity to ensure consistent results and detect problems before they ruin a 
batch. The AccuBrew system is designed to give you unprecedented insight into the fermentation process. Monitor gravity, fermentation activity, clarity, and temperature. Schedule reminders and receive alerts anywhere, anytime. AccuBrew's CIP-ready device is designed to stay out of your way. They know your time and space is precious, and they take up as little of both as possible. No more samples, no cleaning, and no calibration. Set it and forget it. To learn more about AccuBrew, head on over to AccuBrew.com. I-O. Also, ProBrew is excited to announce that they're currently featuring short lead times between two and four weeks for their in-stock ProFill rotary can fillers. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, fill out their contact form on www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. ProBrew, brew your beer. So Jason, let's talk about carrot beer, king of carrot flowers. <laughs> yeah. um, what was the inspiration behind this and what got you into making a carrot elderflower <laughs> yeah. beer? Um, you know, it seems like a, a particular challenge to undertake. Where, where was the inspiration? Yeah, like I said before, I would, uh, you know, you look forward and try to do all your planning. I never thought we'd do a carrot beer, much less even any field beer. Had no desire starting the brewery. So that was never an inspiration sure, there. Sure. So it's funny the way the paths that you get led down. But uh, the story behind that, you, you always do look to do the fun and different beers or try different styles or add on to styles. That's what I really like to do. Um, take take something that you now know well, maybe, and then go from there. And Saison was one that we had a pretty good base and we were really liking that beer and it was doing well for us. So that was kind of the start of the inspiration. But this came about, we're right here in Denver. You know, we're in the Rhino Arts District, which crosses about five neighborhoods, but we're by the, you know, the greater five points neighborhood and um, kind of a food desert out here. And one of the neighborhoods near us, Elyria Swansea, um, actually has an indoor grow house farm that grows vegetables and things around for the neighborhood. And it's a really awesome organization. And right when we opened 2015, we, you know, we were asked, it just seemed like a random event again, but you know, we're running around with our chicken, with our heads cut off, doing everything. And, uh, eat Denver's the kind of, um, independent restaurant association of Denver of all the, um, and so they actually hosted a, a week long, each night, different chefs and things do a dinner. And it's a fundraiser for this grow house here in our general neighborhood. So especially we're big about supporting things. The more direct to our neighborhood, the better. Um, so we went and just did this event and it was magical. It's inside this farm and they set up these dinners and all these chefs that are inspired and all doing this as this fundraiser event. So that got me thinking and it's harvest week, so it's in the fall. If I didn't mention that, it's called harvest week. It just happened here again. They do. They still. It came back after COVID. So that got me thinking. God, we should do something special. All these chefs and everything were specifically creating these menus for this week of um, of events and dinners. So that got me thinking for the next year. We we should try this. And you know, for harvest week, got me thinking something you know around harvest or could it be a field beer? Um, and and so that very next year, we did a, a beet saison that was with um, citrus. So it was like a grapefruit beet saison. It's another even earthier <laughs> product. And it was a super hit. And we actually had all the restaurants, you know, puree and uh, roast the beets and puree them for us. And when it w went over really well. So then by the next year, 2017, I had the idea of doing it again for it. And so inspired by a song name too, having a name before King of Care Flowers. And I looked back through some notes and originally we were going to do purple carrots, 
have all these chefs do them. And then I was looking for, you know, some kind of flower. And I thought, you know, at first lavender, rose or something, just a flower. That's usually where these ideas come from. You know, I think the carrot came first, a purple carrot seemed yeah. cool. And then what would, what would complement that well? So um, we did some tests with it, purple carrot, and it was great, but we already had, we had done this beet saison that was great. Much better color with the yeah. beet. Yeah, beet's amazing color. Yeah. And then in the spring, we have done a blackberry wit before too. So I went and just tried, I thought the orange would just disappear into yellow, but doing that, um, man, the orange just popped. And with the pectin in there, it stayed kind of hazy, like our saisons. Um, and then experimenting with those flowers was just, you know, rose or anything is way too perfumey. Mm. It just didn't work. And a little like using citra hops in our Saison. So I, I had a, like a St. Elderflower drink, um, which is a liqueur. And it's an elderflower liqueur if you've ever had it. And it was maybe is like a... St. Germain. Yeah, St. Germain. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. What did I call it? St. Elderflower? Elderflower. <laughs> Very literal. St. <laughs> Germain. St. Germain. Yeah. And I remember that. And also, if anyone has Ikea's near them, elderflower is like a big... Um, drink and you can buy syrups through them yeah, too. Yeah. And it just kind of stuck in my head if I was thinking of, hey, these are all too perfumey. What's more of a, a floral, like a citrus smelling if you ever smelled like a orange blossom or something. Right, right. Um, something more on that lines. And so elderflower got brought up and it, it was almost instant then. As soon as we started fiddling with elderflower, it's like, that's it. Um, that just complemented so well and brought this fruity character mm. out. Well, and the other odd thing we we're talking about really earthy products like carrots, but really we use a, we can talk about it later, a fresh pressed, or we use pressed juice in it. And really good carrots aren't as earthy as the mm. ones when you're just chomping out of your back garden that I seem to go. I don't even like carrots that much, right? It's not like I eat a ton of sure. raw carrots. And, um, but they're, they're actually very sweet, which we didn't want. I mean, mm. that ferments out, so sure, it doesn't sure. matter, but there is almost a fruity character balanced by that earthiness that we know of as carrots. So it already is there when we're tasting these, if you go have a really good carrot juice, um, you'll notice there's a bit of fruitiness to that with the earthy and very sweet as well. So that, that already was like, Hey, that I knew something to complement that flavor. And that's where elderflower came in. And it, yeah. it, it just was immediate success at that thing we sold it out in like that week or two we did a full batch we sold them out to the restaurants as well so about a 20 barrel batch and it was like oh we might be onto something here we thought it'd be you know a funky fun harvest week beer that's pretty good and it was like we probably need to do this again <laughs> it's interesting because you know now you don't expect it to be much but it it's now a beer that you do make all you know very frequently we so actually very interesting. This is we have just now launched it year round. So huh. very much we you tend to not take weird wild swings or at grand slams of like oh that worked once let's change the brewery and do all that right. right? We right. are trying to be a long term consistent brewery. But so what we did was well let's do it again the next year. We're gonna double. Let's do two batches and it was like bam that went well. And I think by twenty nineteen or so we go well let's do it in the spring as well because we were still doing it around this harvest time. So we did a double release, spring and then the fall, and that went well. <laughs> so it kept adding it on, and then, of course, COVID hit. So we that period of time is just, you know, absorbed down into, yeah. into the mud somewhere. And then when we came back, we were, it kept selling well, too. And one of those funny things, we never wanted it, ne meant for it to be a flagship or year-round. 
But, you know, whenever we'd put it on, it's in our top three beers, we, you know, in our tap room or number one, depending on the time mm. of year. So it almost became obvious. And when you take your subjectiveness out and we're a little more objective, we're like, why aren't we doing this beer year round? So this, this spring of 23, we launched it year round. So the first final release, if you will. And so couldn't be better timing too with it. And then now it's in cans year round too. Excellent. Excellent. Let's talk about the, the carrot juice itself. Like you mentioned, I imagine, you know, as you said, you, you started in this iterative process with purple carrots ended up, and I imagine you've tested and tried a few different, you yeah. know, how do you, how do you now uh, find carrots? And then what is your process like in processing those carrots in order to, to create a, a juice that you then add into the, yeah. the Saison? Um, there, yeah, there's a few things to this that are, some are generalized. So if people are yeah. lo- using weird ingredients or juices or, you right. know, pureed things of, of how you go about it and what's important or not. Um, I will say once you get big, it's really fun to do your fun, tiny batches. <laughs> sure, we had a one sure. barrel, um, pilot, you know, hand zesting limes. And then you're like, it, when we're going up to 20 barrels or a 60 barrel or 80 barrel batch, you're like, I don't think we can do this by hand. So it becomes a, I right, guess that's where right. my engineering comes of like scaling up. How yep. do we do this and still maintain that character? Sure. Um, so with, with the carrots. And you want to medal for this production batch, right? It's not like you did a special. Oh, you know, correct. Right. No, this was just straight off. Yeah. This is just yeah. a batch that went out, um, out for regular sales. Right. Um, we've pretty much locked our SBN, I'd say you know, three years ago, we don't make that many tweaks now, very yeah. minor tweaks. Um, but yeah, carrot was really difficult. And I'd say, um, one thing is we don't back sweeten anything. So it's, that's a challenge in of itself. Um, especially when you use fruit or any of these veggies or strange flavors, um, sugar helps, right? right <laughs> it's right. just like in cooking salt and sugar. And you're using the same diastatic as, uh, yeast that is going to dry that out. Yeah. So we don't have a filter. We don't filter anything. Um, we don't pasteurize, which is hence why we don't back sweeten and we don't want anything exploding, right. exploding out in the market. So that's a challenge in and of itself to get, um, beers to taste really good when they go really dry. Um, so that, that was how, how a challenge already. Well, for, well, first and foremost, we, we ferment everything out then. So we're yeah. not adding to the bright. Right. Um, and especially something delicate like a carrot, you wouldn't want to add into – well, you could try it, I guess. But you don't want to cook it at all because then you get that yeah. cooked carrot flavor. So this going into a fermenter. Um, and we're letting it ferment out completely dry. And with the diastaticus, that's a whole nother one of letting it go even longer. Our fermentation time is more like a long lager on this because you just need that last right. few degrees Play-Doh to go down. But um, the the big challenge with carrots was finding, we went from finding juices to purees and trying to source. When we started going to batch sizes, I was calling carrot farms and we found, and apparently I think the world's largest carrot farm is in California. <laughs> and so sideways through that, we were able to get some of this juice that they already had pressed or pureed. But it's a real pain. I'm telling you, a big carrot production is all about grocery store and or health food stores and big places that can process it because it's really expensive. It's like a partial pasteurization. So you have to ship it frozen and we're paying for frozen trucks, you know, for partial. So it was like the most expensive thing we've ever <laughs> shipped before. So even there was like, all right, we got to find a new source. Um, but the other big challenge we found some, you know, there were ones that are good, but the one wonderful thing about it is that orange color that pops through. It's a really fine balance of, um, that orange not flocking out 
And typically, just in other words, if you puree it yourself for the higher particle count, that the orange from the carrot will just end mm, up flocking out right. solution. You get just a yellow beer. So you do the juice for us worked better for this one. Wonderfully, one other great thing about being in Colorado is there's all these other um, ancillary businesses that help with brewing. So it's not just that there's great water out here. There's good soft water, of course. That's why Coors started here. It's why Budweiser has a plant. But really, it's all these other where we can go get ingredients or people to help us. So we had Alex from Source of Nature, which is a company – um, and she spun off of New Belgium, and they used to have to source weird sure, wild products sure. all the time. So she started her own company and spun off many years ago. She's been doing it much longer, but we didn't know about her as much, um, where it was like, okay, I, I think I can get you that and do it at a better route and how I pull it in and what are you looking for. And in fact, even now, um, it's kind of like the terroir you know, your crop years change. And so things have been changing and she saw we won this medal and it's like, we maybe have to find a different, let's find this different source. We want to make sure it stays, you know, the orange color is huge. There's some really tasty products that just are a little browner, if you will, the way they do a a pasteurization. So that's been wonderful. So that's taken so much work off of it. it. Yeah. 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 Instead of me calling carrot farms directly saying, yeah, can you send it? And they're like, so are you a grocery store? It's like, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so you, you use juice and it's added cold side, you know, is there, imagine concentration and then the way that you, uh, you know, um, work out a blend with elderflower all figures in there. Let's talk about uh, that a little bit. Are there, you know, do you use a homogenization strategy? You know, how do you, uh, is there any stratification in the tank as you add it? How, you know, what are the some process uh, techniques of that? The the juice helps a lot. Well, so almost all, anything, we do a decent amount of fruit, especially with Saison. Yeah. So we've I've started getting a decent amount of experience with it. And because we're not back sweetening, we never add in the bright. Um, it is about timing of when you get it in that fermenter for hom- get a homogenized mix, right. but not too early. And that's, so we're adding it during fermentation, but well past Croizen. Okay. And we have found there's some funky stuff that goes on. And especially we've learned from even making just hazy IPAs of yeah. how you keep haze in beers, which is a funny thing that now we're worried about keeping it. Keeping in it, sure. But um, we went to a talk about if you dry hop um, way too early, you can actually knock haze out right. of beer. Right. Um, and we did have a few batches. We've had some interesting, even with the same supply, where we have had the color drop more than others. And, you know, it's a, like you said, different crop years. You, you yeah. expect some variation, but we're trying to be as consistent as possible. So we found we're safer adding pretty late into fermentation. But you don't want to go too late. You do want that still active and it to stir and to eat it all up. It would eventually eat it anyways. That that Saison strain likes to go to town. So it the nice thing is that thing, will it won't crap out on you. So it'll go, but to get it and to hold tight, um, fairly late, maybe a degree or so of fermentation left Play-Doh bef- when we typically add it. But at least past high Croizen, not before. Yeah. So you got to get past your main your main piece in order to keep that kind of carrot haze stability. Um, and you're not trying to get carrot biotransformation, uh, right. In a, a significant degree there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when we've had, there was a time we did add one way early. Um, and I don't know how this happened. It was something with timing looking back. Cause we're like, well, what happened? And here it is went on like day two or something. Yeah. And yeah, not only did it not add extra flavors to it, the color dropped out, but it almost was like the character of the carrot dropped out too, even though the sugar fermented, 
Um, yeah, it's like all the goodness didn't get locked in. So who knows what the science is exactly, but um, definitely later in fermentation. Sure. Do you do anything you know for this carrot version of the saison with your mash? to try to hold on to some of the kind of body and some of the other create some sort of unfermentable sweetness so that it helps, you know, uh, convey that character of the carrot. Yeah, actually that's a great point. Our normal Saison, we try to go really dry with the mash profile. That being said, we're doing single infusion mash. Most people are. I was at AC Golden when we were trying people, you know, when you're at home brewing and you'd go hot or cold and you're trying to leave longer chain sugars or not, it's amazing how good malt is now. It everything goes pretty dry. It's actually really hard to keep a lot of right, sugar right. left. We did a test there where we were, they were trying to do a three-two beer that used to be an old Colorado law, and so they were trying to leave a lot of sugar. So when you watered it down, it still had body. And for the life of us, for a while, this testing and we got to use the real labs, which we don't have those expensive labs here. But it was like you couldn't ferment it um, hot and cold enough to like leave those sugars. Basically, you had to almost mash, leave it at your mash rest for like, actually it was just a ramp up. It was a zero minute mash hold to even leave with some longer chain sugar. So it's hard to not go dry. We do try, I, with that one does have a little bit different temperature profile than our normal Saison. Yeah. But actually I, we do have a kind of a secret ingredient that, we use in a lot of our fruit beers that helps accentuate the fruit without having that sweetness in its coriander. Hmm. So that coriander is a wonderful, always, uh, people think, you know, learning with wits and all that, you know, you've got your orange peel and coriander and, oh, the orange must be your orangey flavor. But in reality, orange peel is really kind of the pithy bitterness. That coriander does have that nutmeggy flavor or whatever you want to say, but it's actually a lot of the orange flavor comes Hmm. from the coriander or some of the fruit. So it's, I, a little sprinkle of that in a lot of beers with fruit. That's a nice little ingredient to help pop out some fruit flavors. I love it. I love it. It's like uh, Urban Artifact. Brett Coleman Baker's, you know, his his mantra is just a little bit of vanilla, sub threshold vanilla, and that <laughs> yes. helps you know pop this fruit character in the beer. Uh, it's interesting that you could use coriander in a similar kind yeah. of way that uh, just helps push some of that idea of sweetness without. Yeah, uh, because if you try it, it does not taste like a wit. There's not enough coriander that you're sure. like, oh sure. wow, this is spicy. You know the coriander flavor yeah and other than that it's it's the the same kind of uh, 55 ish percent wheat uh, yeah. saison base the the actual grain bills really similar um we maybe made one tweak but not not even for big it may have been for louder ability reasons and not yeah. for flavor yeah cool. well talk to me about the elderflower and then um again how you source that and how um you come came across uh, the right blend of those two Yeah, that one too. That one we're trying to add late, super delicate. So we're looking for something extracted into alcohol um, or um, some kind of water soluble if you can. A lot of stuff we make when we first try, we're extracting ourselves, making tinctures like you would at home. But when you go big, you have to get a TTB approved and all that. So someone's got to do that for you. You can't just sit with your Everclear and make it. (laughs) Sure, sure. There's probably some legal way the big breweries can do it and make their own tinctures. But once you get big, so we were looking for someone who could do it, but it is expensive product. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, a company out of Maryland does that for us. And it is scary every once in a while. I don't know where they get all of uh, that, but it, if they, you know, pulling in the elderflowers and when, when they pull that every once in a while, they're like, Hey, that 
it's, you know, we're six weeks out on even getting the product in to make, you know, to be able to do the tincture for you. So we try to buy it in early, but it's expensive. The only good news is it doesn't use a, a ton of it. And especially where we use it because yeah. we use it. That one, we do go into the bright, um, or during our transfer. And that's mm. where we get really good mixture. Right, right. By the way, if you can, if you're doing anything in brights, if you can do it during transfer from biofining, anything, do, do it while you're transferring. It's the best mix you ever get. So, yeah, that's a really delicate one. So we want it there. We don't want it to ferment out of the top of your fermenter, obviously in a whirlpool. Sure. It's Volatized, just such delicate right. oils. So, yeah, that's a, in the bright. Do they, you know, it's an interesting obviously we're here in Colorado, the ability of modern technology to create water soluble or solubilizable uh, uh, compounds out of things that typically were not water soluble yeah. um, is fascinating. In the last five years, we've watched technology, especially in the cannabis side, kind of push all of this forward to a point where we now have you know technology that allows some of these things to solubilize more readily. Uh, you know, are they using technology like that, or is this more of a uh, that's tincture fun- approach? It's funny you bring that up because. That is that is funny how it's driving it with with cannabis and extraction, especially in the hops world. I feel like they're that's exploding so fast. It's the same thing. I think cannabis was looking at what hops were doing, you know, because there's some extractions from that, sure, both sure. on the oil side and you know to get um, flowable or uh, for your alpha acids, the bittering side. Um, but some of those are terrible products, right? The if you're doing a bittering flowable, well, it's not flowable. You have to have it hot. But, you know, there's some voodoo magic going on now where it's like flowable at almost room temperature. Yeah. Because if anyone's ever worked with those hot products, they're like, uh, it turns into almost like a caramel hard candy if you're not heating it up. Um, we don't we don't use that, but I saw it at in the big brew house at Coors. They were using it. And you'd have to have heat lines along right. the whole thing just to flow. And it's the most bitter thing you've ever tasted in your life. If you ever get a chance, just put a little dab <laughs> no, on your tongue. Don't do that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Um, that all, so I, I'm not sure so much on these, the oil products, like we use a lot of zest oils yeah. too. Um, and those are just awesome. Back to how do you get the character of like a orange or grapefruit or lemon? Man, zest is maybe the best thing, better than the actual fruit of really popping that character yeah. out. But to your point, that's oil. Right, <laughs> and oil right. and w- water don't mix, which mm. beer is mainly water. So you've got to either go into alcohol or a lipo- uh, propylene glycol, you know, yeah. um, which is interesting. But that's all food grade. People first see that and freak out. But they've used that in baking for years and years. So I assume it's okay. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, well, so you you add elderflower in, into the bright. Yep. Um, what's the, how do you finish this beer? Obviously, Saison. So having a, a you know good foam. Obviously, you're you're pumping a bunch of weed into this, yeah. and then you're you know trying to make this beer look good and present well, but also having a, that kind of high Saison carbonation helps it feel kind of effervescent and uh, you know and bold and energetic. Yeah. The uh, the good news on this that carrot really keeps the that. Foam, which we love on saisons, but it keeps it more in check. And frankly, it's a love hate. Say our saison at that sixty percent wheat is got nice foam, right? And we do try want that higher carbonated. But I'll tell you, if anyone's dealt with ever selling beer out to the public, you have to be at the best case scenario for the worst draft systems. And in fact, slowly over time, for our draft, at least on our saisons, we um, we've lowered the carb level mm. when we sell it outside because the amount of people, if the, if they don't have a dialed draft system, um, it's just going to be a foam pour, and then you're just 
pulling out kegs or trying to, I mean, we became draft experts for people. But by <laughs> sure. the way, this happens in Germany as well. If you don't realize like their Hefeweizens and things that in a bottle can be really high, three plus volumes, they're, they're carbon at low on draft. And it's exactly for that reason. They don't know who it's going out right, to. And right. so, you know, in America, standard kind of draft is probably set up only for like a two, five, two, six volume carb. So a lot of those will lower. The good news, so the carrot just doesn't foam near as much with the other, you know, precipitated or the solids that are in solution. So we actually pour pretty well with that. The big difference is, and Hazy IPAs brought it on, is if anything, we wanted haze, but typically we call it like a Saison haze or a light haze that we've always done with the Saison. And when we add fruit, there's so much pectin and haziness in fruit. When we first started doing some of these fruit or field style Saisons, we actually were really worried it was too hazy. You know, it would be like opaque. And even right. if it's a cool color, we're like, ooh, people aren't going to want this. But kind of happy happy coincidence that it goes together. The, the rise of hazy IPAs has totally changed it. Like we used to add pectinase to some of our other fruits yeah. to just clear them up, maybe not all the way, but clear it up so it was more that light haze. Right. But now, man, it's almost like preferred to have it like, ooh, I can't see through that at all. So now we, we don't do any other processing to it. So, Is there anything else to use to kind of maintain that stability for it? No, it actually, that's the other thing. Because we don't pasteurize or any of these other things, we're looking at our technique all the way through. And like you said, of where you're adding additions and how good your uh, product is that you're putting in to hold its stability. And so luckily, the one good news is if you get a nice Saison haze, it lasts a long time. You know, when you have this weird hop interaction with these hazy IPAs, it's still, there's some, there's some magic in there. And there's some strange techniques that we're trying to take from that. But yeah, it's it's always a, a worry. Very long term, it does start losing its haze a bit, but usually it never drops fully clear, yeah. except for some of those cases I told you that we realized, oh, we had a process difference. It's not like uh, like those uh, those beers you have to store the keg upside down and then flip it over before you pour it. Not as bad, but we do get a little bit of settling. Once yeah. again, because we don't filter at all and we don't centrifuge here, uh, we would probably, if we had a centrifuge, if we got to a bigger production, we'd probably do a light centrifuge yeah. on it. would help with that. But you'll get a little in the can, like your last little bit of the pour, but it's not like um, if anyone's had the sludge bomb, I, sure, you know, hazies. Sure. Sells the carrot idea. Um, is this? Do you hop it in the same way that you do deer you uh, using Citra, or do you take a different hopping approach we, to this? We switched the hops on it. Originally, we do actually do have a little bit of a bittering hop in it, and we're deer you. Well, no, deer Citra all the way through. Yeah. Um, this one uses just a a traditional bittering hop, but so little. I mean, we're probably at like. 10 BU or something, yeah. right? But um, no, we use we do use an American hop in it. We don't dry hop it. Obviously, we don't want to disrupt that character, but there is a little bit of Whirlpool hop. It's American hop. I think we've switched. That was probably the one small, small tweak through the years. We were using a different hop that we stopped contracting that we were using in a pale ale. So I, I believe it's El Dorado now, but don't quote me because <laughs> sure, our brewers sure. now have changed it. I haven't specifically brewed it for a while. <laughs> fair fair yeah, enough. Yeah, not a yeah. light American hop in the Whirlpool. But once again, that's one we want the hop character pretty much out of the yeah. way. Um, just a little bit to help pop it out. But whereas like on our dear you, the hop, that citra hop is part of the character of the beer. That's the balance there. Yeah. Yeah. And so does the finished beer kind of stay in that perceived 10 IBU le level or does the carrot and elderflower, you know, do these other elements, you know, maybe amp up that perceived bitterness at all? 
Not much at all okay. on that style beer. If we ever do ones with, I like using um, fruit peel, dried peels yeah. a lot. And I think I said it before. I love to use the peel for my perceived bitterness in a fruit beer. So like we, you know, we do, a, we'll do um, a blood orange IPA coming up. Right. And if you look at our hop load, you know, even theoretical, it's real low, but real world, that IBU theoretical number is just a number, right? It's still about perceived bitterness. So we actually have a pretty high um, peel load in that. And that's giving our IPA bitterness, if you will, that perceived more of a pithy fruit bitterness um, than actually using uh, bittering hops. But in the the elderflower, um, no, neither of those products bring much bitterness to it. So that's all we dial that with our hops, but but real low, just enough to balance some of the sweetness of it. Sure, sure. Is there anything else to to King of Carrot Flowers that we haven't touched on? Yeah, uh, no, yeah. It's it's been a super fun and challenging beer that we came along that was supposed to be this one off, um, but we do keep learning from it. The one other thing is it's still a diastaticus yeast, so we we try to go as dry, dry, dry as possible. So it will still slowly pick up some carb with time, but we've seen the saisons hold up really well. Amazing. And we thought it'd be one of our, um, shortest shelf life products from that saison to this, but man, that saison, because we don't filter it out if it's the yeast. I mean, it, it's one of our longest shelf life from when we actually just do true, um, sensory yeah. of any of our products. So we love it. It's, it's another reason we decided to put it on the shelf. This isn't like a two week beer that disappears. So it's held up really well. That's interesting. And I imagine some of that is the very low, IBU hop contribution that those hops yeah. are not, you know, there's not as much hop aging out quickly. Yeah. Um, but I, you don't get yeah. the uh, oxidation though, either on a light beer. The worry is yeah. you get that cardboardy oxidation, but I think that Saison character, um, the with the esters still doing a little and bit the yeast is doing things too. And maybe that was pulling any, you know, as we package oxygen immediately mm-hmm. out. Um, it really doesn't oxidize like some other beers will. It's fascinating. We've, I've, we've got, uh, beer in our fridge at the office that we brewed back in like 2017. It was part of one of our brewers retreats and it was a, there's no hops, hundred percent spruce tip beer. Oh uh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. How a six year old beer, you know, that's been warm stored in the office, like this, some oxidation, obviously sure. it's not like we packaged this in any, you know, like it was hand bottled, you know? Yeah. Um, but also there's still some yeast in there. Um, but because there's no hops, like it still has this yeah. incredible character and it's just the weirdest thing to see how hops such a beautiful addition to beer, but also, you know, create yeah, this giant long-term detriment. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, Jason, if you want to learn more about, uh, ratio and about King of Carrot Flowers, uh, how can they find out more about you all? Yeah. I mean, uh, that's our handle for everything. Ratio beer works through Instagram. Um, we now are on TikTok, starting to do funny videos. <laughs> hey, hey. hey, it's pretty, pretty fun stuff there, but, and then ratiobeerworks.com directly in and Facebook as well. It's all the same handle. So that's the best way through. Well, I appreciate you talking with me about how you all brew this field beer, this gold medal winning field beer. Um, cheers. All right. Thanks very much. Oh, you like wildly aromatic IPAs and tropical lagers? Good thing Omega designed thialized yeast for just that reason. Thialized yeast are a new tool for brewers 
to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. And wait, there's more. Omega Yeast makes yeast to order with a consistent one-week lead time, ensuring peak freshness and reliability. Also, who doesn't love free samples? The Perfect Puree is offering a free sample box of their frozen fruit purees, concentrates, and blends to professional brewers. Picked at the peak of ripeness, their fruit is pureed and frozen for optimal fresh flavor and color. Explore classics from red raspberry and blood orange to unique fruit juice blends such as Yuzu Lux Sour. Choose from 40-plus flavors and build a free sample box at perfectpuree.com slash beer. That's perfectpuree, P-U-R-E-E dot com forward slash beer. Complimentary to professionals only. And this episode's brought to you by Yakima Chief Hops. The seventh annual Pink Boots Blend is now available for pre-order. $3 of every pound of the Pink Boots Blend purchased will be donated to the Pink Boots Society, a nonprofit organization that supports women and non-binary individuals in the fermented and alcoholic industry through education. Place your orders from Yakima Chief Hops and secure your volume of this limited blend for your Pink Boots Collaboration Brew Day on March 8th, International Women's Day. Learn more at www.yakimachief.com slash pink-boots-blend. For the second segment of this Saison Mega episode of the podcast, uh, joining me is uh, Jeremy Clays, uh, head brewer for Protagonist. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. Thank you for having me, Jamie. Turns out that uh, Protagonist and you are no strangers to gold medals in the Saison category at GABF. Uh, you have gold in specialty Saison in 2021 for a kumquat Saison, gold in Belgo-American uh, beer in 2022 for a, a dry-hopped Saison-style beer, uh, gold in classic Saison this past year, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago for Cal-L, a, uh, a classic-style Saison. Um, three years in a row of golds, in uh, in saison related categories, um, that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, it's been you know a fun kind of ride, and they're really fun beers to make. Uh, we don't really get to make them a whole hell of a lot, so it's kind of fun to splice them in when we have a chance on our brew schedule. And it's something I'm passionate about, uh, so it's just really fun to kind of make them and get them out there. And it's nice that they're appreciated. You get to win medals for these labors of love and this style, uh, you know, that you love to make. So, talk to me a little bit about your brewing history. What pathway did you take through the, uh, to end up where you are now as head brewer for Protagonist? Uh, it's kind of been an interesting one, just like everybody else. Uh, been in it for just over a decade. Uh, kind of started, you know, about ten years ago. I was actually uh, teaching English over in Korea and was. Uh, thinking about my next move and had always been really into craft beer. And I was really lucky in that uh, one of my really good friends was helping to open a brewery in Florida called Grayton Beer Company. Uh, and he offered me a position kind of just doing everything. And I took the opportunity, came back and started from the ground level there uh, and was there for about a year and a half. So 2012 to about 2013. And you know, once I kind of got into it and really realized that I loved brewing, I loved all the facets of it, uh, even down to like the minute details of cleaning, it just felt like a really interesting and fun thing to be doing and making a product that people consumed and added life to their lives. It's really cool. So I ended up going uh, to Siebel and Domen's Academy. So I did the Master Brewers course, uh, which was a great program, you know, about six months long. And, you know, after I kind of graduated through that program, so spent time in Chicago and then spent time in Europe uh, and honestly had like the best summer of my entire life. Uh, even if you don't like, uh, you know, stay in brewing, if you go through that program, you are going to have 
so much fun. You're going to meet so many cool people from all around the world. And hopefully they'll become lifelong friends like some of us that stayed. But uh, after that, I got lucky enough to get hired by Wicked Weed when they were just kind of ramping up their production and moving into their production facility. So I'm horrible with dates. Uh, I could look back at my resume, but that was, you know, probably about eight years ago, I would say right now, where I got lucky enough to kind of get hired as they were just expanding uh, out of just a pub and and sour model into like full brown production facility. So I was hired with them uh, and stayed with them right at about three years. Uh, so it was there kind of pre, pre-buyout, uh, through the buyout and then post buyout and had just an awesome experience the entire time there. Got exposed to a lot of stuff, uh, you know, started off as kind of a shift brewer and kind of graduated into lead brewer and then got lucky enough to do a little bit of like R&D as they were just kind of creating that position. And through that, got to work at like all the facilities, which was really neat and, you know, get got exposed to a lot more sour beer. That was a passion of mine but wasn't something that I was doing on a day-to-day basis and got to do some pub brewing and then small batch brewing along with our 50 barrel uh, system at the time. And then, uh, you know, I was really kind of eager for a change where I could kind of, you know, kind of carve my own path in a way and and learn uh, on the job. And, you know, I really wanted to put a brewery together and be a founding member of something. And that's where I met the great team at Protagonist uh, and, Started with them in January of 2019, and here we are, uh, you know, going on five years later, uh, still rocking it. We started on a two-barrel system, uh, and now we've expanded into a 15-barrel, three-vessel system. Should also mention that you're in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah, sorry. I I, uh, yeah, I don't think I mentioned that, you know, at the the top here. And so you've stayed in that general uh, uh, southern environment. Um, as you guys started protagonist, uh, what, uh, what was the goal and how did you go about designing beers, uh, for what the brewery was going to become? Yeah, I think at first we, we didn't really have a, a great idea of necessarily the, the beers we wanted to make. Uh, whenever we first started, you know, we started on a two barrel system. So really we, we had a two barrel system and then we also were kind of a beer bar model too. Uh, so we had like something like 28 drafts. So I was kind of filling up some of those drafts. And then I also had some serving tanks. And right away, we were just kind of like, for me, it was feeling out the system and kind of looking at the styles that that the city kind of wanted. Uh, So, you know, hazy IPAs, uh, clear IPAs were still a thing, but were kind of phasing their way out. And it was really the rise of the hazy was kind of in that 2019 time. You know what I mean? It was really coming through. So putting out a lot of beers like that uh, and then just dabbling in lagers. We were on a really small system, so we didn't really have the capacity to be, you know, letting beer sit in tank for a long time. So at first we were kind of rotating through a lot of different styles uh, and just kind of like having fun, to be honest, because it was a small system. So a lot of the beers that we were producing were gone pretty quick. So it was just kind of churn and burn and have fun with designing different recipes, but also just kind of like learning the identity of where we wanted to go. Uh, and I don't really think until we launched into our larger facility that we really kind of gained more of an idea, an identity of what we wanted to be. Uh, and we quickly, after 2019, we signed a lease in January 2020 in our larger facility right before the world melted down. Uh, yeah, it was quite the time and uh, put a deposit down on a brew house. And honestly, looking back, we were very fortunate to do it then. 
just because it was before COVID scarcity happened, you know, and everything became way more expensive and build outs are more expensive and equipment was more expensive. So we were able to kind of get started. And, and really, once we moved into this new facility in late 2020, we really began to call a little bit more of an identity. And part of our philosophy here is just like our, our tenants are uh, people, place, and time. And, you know, it's people is that we're making beer for, you know, the everyman and beer is part of people's lives and it brings joys to, joys to people's life. Uh, and place kind of was just like, you know, that's when I started really getting involved in using local malt. And uh, we really wanted to kind of decide that we wanted to have like a, a, a terroir to the product we make. So we really made a commitment to, you know, basically using 100% of our malt, almost 100%, I'd say probably like 98% of the malt that goes in our beers is from a local malster here in North Carolina, Epiphany Craft Malt. Uh, hi, Jordan and Sebastian, if you're listening. But they make really awesome products and most of it's sourced throughout the Southeast. Uh, a, a large portion is also comes from North Carolina. So we just felt really good about making connection with them. And then time for us was just like, you know, the idea of like, slow down, like you're, you're here, you're enjoying this, but also kind of an ode to styles of the past. A lot of the things that we've done in this building is trying to stay relevant with current trends, but also like, you know, I'd like to say a lot of the stuff we're making is a classic style plus, you know, it's, it's a classic style that we may put our own spin on to. Uh, and that's kind of how a lot of my approach to Cezanne has kind of gone too. It's just like an ode to the past and, and, you know, and then looking at like, Hey, we're moving into the future, uh, with some of the beers that we make. Well, you've just given me the perfect segue to start talking about Cezanne. Um, let's, let's talk about how you approach Cezanne. Um, and maybe we'll start, obviously you've got multiple expressions that go in different directions from dry hopping, fruited expressions, breaded expressions. Um, you know, but this past year in 2023, you won a gold medal for classic Cezanne. Um, talk to me about, you know, as you are designing a recipe, you know, and the idea of classic Cezanne is such a funny one. We have, you know, we have some kind of North stars like, you know, Cezanne DuPont and these, these kind of gold standards of Cezanne that we all look to, but the idea of like dogma in Cezanne is, is almost an oxymoron, right? Like it is not necessarily one thing. It is more of a mindset and approach than it is, you know, a specific style with tight strictures. Um, but knowing that, like, where do you start when you are thinking about designing a classic Saison recipe? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, and it's just really multifaceted, but, uh, you know, just like with any recipe that I'm doing, I'm thinking about my desired end product. Uh, well, I want that end product to be and what I want that end product to taste like. Uh, and then I kind of work backwards. Uh, but kind of before I get there, I always think about like, the intent of what I'm trying to do and almost put uh, a roadmap or a timeline on what I want to do before I do it. You know, I think uh, a lot of misconceptions of Cezanne is that, that it's just like a really, uh, you can make one in, in 10 days or two weeks. And, you know, I really disagree with that, with that, that, that idea. And I think it's really hurt the style. Uh, you know, when I walk into a Cezanne, I, I really think like this beer is probably going to take time or is going to take time. And I, and I approach a lot of the Cezannes that we brew here 
more like lagers than even ales and that like you know i i like to age them a little bit longer i think they do better cleaning up in bottle or lagering or in keg so when i look at something like cow l with a classic saison i i you know i know what the end product is going to be and that north star of course is like you know the saison duponts of the world and you know i think that beer is uh absolutely fantastic especially if you can get something you know a fresh version of it which is you know hard to find sometimes but uh you know if you can get a really fresh version of it which fresh is probably six months old you know let's be honest it's absolutely fantastic so it is interesting i I can say that having um you know had fresh saison dupont on tap in you know in the cafe next to the the brewery uh, it is remarkably different um, than the bottled version that we tend to to drink here. And both are great, um, but it's quite a bit different. Yeah, hundred percent. So uh, I guess when I look at a beer like Calel, I'm really looking at my final intention for the beer for it to be this really dry, bitter. Uh, but for me, I like mine to be phenolic and estery, but not too phenolic. So a really balanced, bitter. Uh, highly carbonated beer is my end goal. Uh, and then for me, I always layer in, you know, when I'm looking at designing a Saison recipe, I think about yeast. But one of the first things, of course, I start with is my raw materials and and what I'm going to put in that beer. Uh, for me, I think, you know, Saison in general, having that farmhouse tradition always sings, you know, alternative grains of sorts. So using a, a good amount of Pilsner, but also layering in wheat, spell, rye, uh, you know, I've made buckwheat saisons before, but looking at those alternative grains as a base are, are really fun to play with and they really play into the style. So for me, and this beer in particular, Kalel was built on a, a recipe of Pilsner malt, wheat malt, and rye. And that's really a go-to for me for a lot of the Saison bases that I use. I might change up the proportions of where I'm putting some of those grains, but I think they play really well together. Uh, you know, Pilsner is just a beautiful base malt, uh, and Epiphany makes a, an excellent one that I use in all my beers. The wheat gives it just the touch of body that you kind of want to have because you're expecting the spear to really dry out. Uh, and, you know, most of your Saisons, they really should be under 2 Play-Doh or 10-8 in gravity. You know, anything sweeter than that, it, it's hard to call it a Saison. And then the rye adds this great earthy character, but also really helps to dry out the beer. So, you know, sometimes even with a Saison, it may be dry by gravity, but may still have so many esters that it tastes sweet. But the rye really helps to cut through all that and really clear the palate and just kind of wanting you to have that next sip. So that's what what is it about what is it about rye that that does that i'm i'm curious is it just that kind of light spicy character to it or does it just attenuate uh, more than you know when it, it's run through a typical mash yeah i i don't think it's attenuation necessarily i think it's just the character of the grain uh i mean you can kind of taste it and and bourbons or whiskey to have a portion of rye you just have that beautiful spicy quality uh in north carolina they grow one i think i might pronounce this wrong a Baruzi rye, which is really known for being uh, spicy and earthy. And there's different sorts of rye that are grown out there. Some are fruitier than others. This one in particular sure, sure. is just known for being really earthy, quite dry and quite spicy. And it really helps with beer styles like this to add at a, a small percentage. I think in this beer, we did like 3% rye 
And you may may or may not know it's there, but once you say it's there, people are going to taste it because it leaves that palate wanting that next sip. You know what I mean? You want another drink after you had a sip of it. Sure. About how much, you know, approximately how much wheat also goes into this? Uh, this one I did a little lighter. Uh, I just like any good brewer, a lot of times will round up to the whole or half bag. So for this one, it was a all bag, which put it at 7%, but that was really about my target. I really wanted to put about 5% in, uh, but you know, I don't, uh, I, I'm not about putting 37 pounds in. So for this batch in particular, 55 landed at 7%. So that that's kind of where we ended up. And what does that wheat do for it? I mean, I imagine there's, you know, there's both a foam component to it as well as some body component to it, given that uh, this is going to end up as a very, very dry beer. Yeah, I think you get uh, you get a, you get body from it. Uh, we do step mashes on almost all of our beers here. And this one in particular, of course, was step mashed, uh, being a Belgian beer. So I think, you know, it gives body. And then the way that we step mash it, I feel like I get a little creaminess out of it which is something that's nice because you have all these components layered in together uh, through the hops, the esters, the phenolics, the the rye that's, you know, this kind of earthy, spicy backbone that shines through. And then just a touch of creaminess helps with that head retention. And it's something that like I always think should be in a Saison is something that's going to give you uh, something like wheat, whether it be wheat or spelt. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of it. I probably would have put spelt in this particular beer, but we were having trouble sourcing it uh, this year. So just kind of landed on on wheat, uh, but probably would have had spelt in there if I would been able to get it. What do you love about spelt compared to, to wheat? Yeah, I think for me, the spelt that we get gives definitely a, a fruitier component. Uh, a lot of the times, the ones that we've gotten through Epiphany is, is, you know, it's like the ancient form of wheat. So it's a little bit less refined to me, the, the flavor, at least it's not necessarily as soft and mellow. Uh, we have a red winter wheat that I buy through Epiphany. So spelt to me is just a lot more robust and, uh, you know, it has almost like a great cantaloupe quality to it, which is kind of weird to say, but that usually isn't grown in the Southeast. I think that's more, uh, grown maybe towards like Maryland, a little bit further North. And they've just had trouble sourcing it this year. So really kind of stuck with the wheat base, which isn't isn't that different. It's splitting hairs really. And and I think in the end beer, it may be hard to pick it out, but it's just something that I think is fun to play around with. You know, we we joke and talk about the idea of like rusticity in Saison, you know, quite a bit. And a lot of that comes back to this ingredient choice in one way or another, <laughs> not just the the fermentation approach. Um, does that play into any consideration for you? And do you find, you know, that some of these blends of grains, you know, sourced in the way that you source them has a kind of a flavor impact that, uh, captures a certain, you know, kind of idea of farmhouse or Saison for you? Yeah, I think it does personally. Um, I, I think it's important to, be considerate of that. Like when we're talking about this farmhouse tradition and it's always thought of this like rustic product, uh, at least from the brewer sense, you know, I think everyone's got a different idea of what a Saison is depending on maybe what forum you're looking at or, or who you're talking to, uh, online, there's all sorts of voices and, you know, a lot of people lean towards yeast as the main, like that's the driver of what a Saison is, the yeast you use. And, you know, I have some Belgian heritage in my family and then have had the fortunate uh, experience of traveling to Belgium a couple of different times. 
uh, in my brewing career. And, you know, whenever last time I was there and I think I was, I got lucky enough to go to uh, De La Sen and, and meet Jan de Betts. And I was talking to him and I was like, what do you think is the driver? Because, you know, we always talk about in America, it's always yeast driven or was yeast driven, yeast driven. He's like, honestly, like, I think what makes the Saison, a Saison is, is, is the grain. It's, it's where you're sourcing the grain and what's in it. And that kind of like stuck with me a good bit and really stuck with the philosophical mindset that I had that like, you know, this is more of an agricultural based product, just as much as it is a, a yeast based product. And, you know, that stuck with me on the long term because now we're, you know, using mostly 99% local grain uh, on on what the, the products that we make. And to me, it stuck with the essence of what a Saison is amongst a number of different things, you know, like, you know, I start with the grain and then I, you know, begin to think about in terms of the, the water content uh, in North Carolina, we're blessed with this beautiful soft water. So it really is just a, an empty slate for us to do whatever we want with it. Uh, and when you go from there, you really want to start thinking about, I treat my water about the same generally, you know, a little higher sulfate uh, PPMs, you know, I'm shooting for like 150. Uh, so kind of like an IPA, almost a light IPA. So I'm looking to accentuate sort of that that hoppiness. But then from there, you you layer in the yeast and that's your next choice. It's like, okay, where do I want this yeast to go? Uh, and that's part of the story of the beer you're creating. I, I definitely want to talk about fermentation, but I'd love to talk about the step mash before we actually get there. Um, are there any details to the way that you mash with this mixed grain bed that uh, or, or grist bill that uh, um, you, know, you, you find help promote the idea of this very tight dryness at the end of the beer? Yeah. So, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I've tried a bunch of different things with the system we have. We're, we're lucky enough to have like a dedicated mash mixer, which is awesome for the beers that I make because everything's a little bit different. Uh, my brewer and I always talk about that. There's only two of us on the team. He's like, why is this one like this? And this one's like that. And I was like, well, this is a different beer than that one. So like, we're looking for something to achieve something different out of it. But realistically, uh, you know, my first step on this one, I don't go through all the steps because the malt we have is fairly modified. So I'm not starting right. super low at like 110 and trying to do like a beta gluconase and just doing all these protein rests. Really, I go right into, you know, a sac rest, a sacrification rest. And on this particular beer, I want it to be super dry. So I'm holding it at like 145, 144, 145 for you know 40 minutes just to make sure everything's completely converted and then from there i always like to do like a higher protein rest uh different names for it you know i've heard it called a, a beta uh beta glucan on beta glucan rest what am i saying uh oh man i'm having a brain fart year i uh but i i kick it up to 161 uh and i'll, I'll think about i and just absolutely blanking here. I apologize, Jamie. But yeah, usually I start at like 145, hold it there for 45 minutes uh, to do that sack rest. Then I'll go ahead and kick it up to 161. Uh, and that really, I think, helps with a little bit of creaminess, adding some body. And it's really supposed to help with your protein matrix for head retention. So I'll hold that from anywhere to 20 to 40 minutes, depending on what I'm trying to do. This particular beer, I did... 30 minutes at 161. Uh, and then from there, I usually don't mash out. Uh, I usually go from there straight into the lauder ton and, you know, put in a, a, 
my base water, foundation water at 170. And that usually holds that temperature of 161, the duration of my sparge and runoff. After you're done laddering, you know, what does a boil look like on the Saison for you? Uh, after I've laddered over, usually my boil uh, is standard 90-minute 90, 90 boil. On these beers, uh, I haven't really changed much of how I'm boiling it. Uh, I like doing 90-minute. I know my particular setup, sometimes if I do 60, I could have some DMS coming in. So I really just feel like 90 is my safe bet. And it kind of leans back on that brewer's dogma where it's like, hey, if it's not broken, don't don't worry about it. But yeah, once you kind of get in the boil, I, I do add a 90-minute uh, hop addition for this beer. I'll, I'll add my hops as I'm going, uh, starting to run off and just let those hops kind of first wort hop where they're they're coming up to boil uh with with the beer or with the work so i'll do a first work hop uh and then through that you know i'll do a, a 90 minute hop edition and then generally i'll do a 10 or 15 and then a whirlpool edition as well what uh, are there hops that you enjoy using in this kind of saison context and you know you mentioned that this idea for the beer the finished beer is a very bitter beer you know what uh you know Obviously, you're using calculated IBUs for this, um, you know, for as a small brewery. But you know, is there a way that you think about you know this you know, the amount of bitterness that you're pushing in hot side? Yeah. So when I'm pushing in hot side hops, you know, ideally I'm aiming 30 to 40 IBUs. I'm kind of looking at my brew sheet on this beer, uh, and those are calculated and theoretical. You know, the drier your beer is going to be, the the more that shines through. And the fact that right. I added rye to this beer, it, it's going to have this drying quality that's already going to seem slightly bitter in a way. Like it all plays together, whether it's the sulfate, the rye, and then the hops you use. This particular recipe, uh, I used Super Sazer as my bittering hop. And then again, back to uh, being just a good brewer, I uh, calculated my load based on 11 pound hops of of hallertau middle fruit uh we use that hop i really like it it really helps with saison because again it's got like a spicy quality already along with being quite herbal and knowing that i was trying to make a classic saison you know i knew that these are the hops that i should be using and these are the hops that i wanted to use uh super sauzer is a fun varietal that comes out of michigan and it really is like super sauce you know, you do get spicy, but you do get a lot more lemon notes out of it. So I wasn't mm. really looking for that lemon quality or lime quality. I really just wanted to get, you know, something that was more more noble-like. Uh, I use it in a couple of other recipes. So for this beer, I was able just to drop in, you know, like five and a half pounds at 90 minutes. And that was like my large bittering charge. And that's probably where I got most of my IBUs, uh, especially now that like, you know, Germany's been having some some struggles with, with climate change and hops, and a lot of your your alphas of those German varietals are quite lower. So I I really just said, okay, like I'm going to get you know close to 20, 15, 20 IBUs right off the bat in this ninety minute edition, and then from there are, I'll get my last bit in the ten and whirlpool editions. Interesting, and you know you mentioned so, thinking about some of these noble flavors. You know, in the finished beer, you know, how does that work, and how do you find that? that kind of timing and that kind of uh, heat exposure through the boil impacts, you know, that flavor. How do you, how do you describe, you know, in the finished beer, what those hops convey as? Yeah. I mean, I think you just want to play with uh, the yeast you're using and, and the grains that are already there. Uh, 
you know, Hollertown Middle Fruit is not going to be a blow your socks off hop. It's going to be a hop that's going to give you a lot of herbal qualities, uh, herbal earthiness. And then, you know, in, in Pilsner's, you can probably taste the slight spiciness that's there. But, you know, in a beer like this, there's just so much other stuff going on. I'm not putting a whole lot of consideration of that hop flavor, but I don't want it to be a competing hop flavor. I want it to work in harmony with the overall end goal of the beer. And, you know, a hop like this was the perfect choice for that. I just want it to harmonize with everything else that's going on in the beer. Uh, and in my specialty Saison that we did, Air is Beautiful, that had kumquats and had Brett, I used Centennial and Citra in the Whirlpool because I wanted to play on those citrus forward flavors, knowing I'm adding kumquats later and knowing I'm adding Brett later. I wanted something that would be a little bit more expressive. Uh, knowing that it was probably going to get wiped out in the end by everything else that was going on, but it was going to harmonize with the goal of that beer. Let's come back and talk about, you know, fermentation. Okay. Um, you know, so you, you, is, uh, your last hot side is, uh, your hop edition is what in that like 15 minute range and you're not doing any whirlpool hopping on this one. No, actually um, this one I did do whirlpool. So I did, oh. I divided that 11 pounds into about, uh, five and six pounds. So, you know, really thought about adding some whirlpool hops, but again, like the holler towel middle for, I just don't feel like it's that pungent of a hop when you're putting it through the Saison rigmarole, which is just going to be a lot of esters, phenolics, you know, plus, like I said, I have that rye component that really is like a, a really drying spicy quality. It, it adds into what you're trying to do but I don't think that it's that strong of a hop that you would really notice that it's there. I mean, that's just my sure. my feelings on it. I think that's maybe a little unromantic, uh, but I just think, like I said, I'm trying to gain uh, harmony in what I'm trying to do and knowing that this is more of a delicate hop, that it's going to add this nice herbal, earthy, spicy balance to it. Uh, and it's just going to play into the overall overall flavor profile of the beer. But it does work even in the whirlpool then to give you just a little bit of that extra character. Sure, I think so. Yeah, I don't think you should limit yourself to not adding hops in the whirlpool. Uh, but I think you know, everyone's process is different and everyone's whirlpools are different. And you know, I, I knew it for mine that I wasn't really that concerned about it. And I think if you were to have this beer, I'm sorry I didn't send it to you, Jamie. I meant to. I just completely forgot about it. Uh but uh, I think if you were to have it, you wouldn't necessarily know what hop it is. You'd probably just be like, well, this is actually just really in harmony. And, you know, that's the overall goal. 100%. That makes a lot of sense. Well, let's talk then about uh, fermentation, your approach to, to Saison fermentation. Sure. Uh, so kind of talking about it before, you know, my feeling on fermentations for Saison is, is kind of a weird one uh, in that. I, I love to give it so much time, you know, and when I look at this and I, and I put a Saison in the tank, I'm, I'm giving myself most likely close to two months of, of tank time. Uh, now, again, like I'll kind of split that up into like what I'm doing with the beer because there's like a lot of different angles you can play with it. But I really start off with a primary fermentation where I'm really knocking out uh, in the low 70s. And depending on the yeast strain that I'm using, I'm looking to go probably into the mid 80s. Uh, I've found personally that letting the temperature get up that high adds a lot of positives to your fermentation. It's really quick. I mean, in two days, you're probably 90% done plus of, of the fermentation you're going to have. 
But a strong, vigorous fermentation like that, I feel, tends to soften the phenolics that you're going to get in the beer. Uh, Saisons that I've had that people have like had the temperatures, you know, in the 70s throughout fermentation just seem to be really sharp and phenolic. And the better ones I've had have, have let that natural ramp up happen. So for this particular beer, uh, you know, I started off in the low 70s, 72, and let it get all the way up to like 86. But that's all it wanted to do anyways. I don't even think glycol turned on. It got to 85, stopped, and then naturally ramped back down. And my feeling with the primary fermentation of Saison is that even if it's just started, or even if it looks like it's done, you know, the yeast that I'm using for this is almost always diastaticus. And you have so many cool flavors that are developed when fermentation is basically over, but it's just chewing through the smallest details and working through dextrins. And that's where I feel like you really create a cool beer is probably when uh, traditionally you may have already crashed this beer, but knowing it's a Saison and knowing you're doing with a diastaticus, you just let it continue to chew through all of that. So realistically, my primary fermentation is probably three weeks at the minimum, you know, and just letting it do its thing. You know, it's kind of like you said and forget it. You know, I definitely believe in leaving low pressure, if no pressure on these beers. So no pressure to me, me just means, you know, having a, a blow off valve or a bucket that barely has any water in it. I don't usually let it be completely open. You know, that would be akin to open fermentation. But for me, I'm just a little nervous about that because it's diastaticus yeast and I have other things going on in the brewery that aren't that. So my primary fermentation is at least three weeks long, I'd say, on these beers. So that's interesting. And and this temperature thing, I think, um, almost feels mildly counterintuitive. You know, I think that there's this often this feel that warmer fermentations are going to produce, you know, more ester and phenol and a more characterful fermentation and maybe even a more kind of ragged fermentation, sure. um, you know, with bigger ups and downs. Okay. Um, but it, and it's interesting to me that you are saying that it's, it's actually a little bit different for you that, uh, that it reduces that kind of phenolic component. Yeah, that's just a feeling that I have, uh, and that's just from the personal experience I've had. Is the better saisons that I've had have always been the ones that you really get like it really warm, you know. And you know, I think the one strain that people really know about is you know that traditional Dupont strain, the, the saison one strain that's available. That you, know, you can really get that in the nineties and just let it rip. And I'll, if you don't do that, it, it may stall. Uh, I haven't had that many issues with that one stalling, but you know people have. But I think for me, the better beers I've had that have almost less phenolics are the ones that you just absolutely let rip, uh, and it, it really just tends to like you know that that clove character is still there, and all spice character is still kind of there, but it's not overwhelming. But like the saisons that I've had that people have kind of capped the temperatures in the seventies, they just really taste kind of messy. Uh, and, and it seems like the phenolics take over where the esters just aren't as full as they should be. So yeah, it is counterintuitive, but it's just, you know, it's something that I found that works. And I think if you were to ask a, a lot of people, they, they may say the same thing, but it, it also could be very strained dependent on what strains you're working with. Do you lean on the, that kind of Dubont strain for most of your saisons or, uh, you know, do you vary from that based on what your end goal is for the beer? 
Yeah, I think it's definitely the end goal sort of a thing. This beer did, in particular did not have the DuPont strain. Hmm. Uh, I won't talk too much about what strains I use, just based on sure. uh, that's one of the things that I think is a fun mystery for people to have. And I think it's also fun for people to experiment with strains. Uh, you know, I've definitely been through them all to a certain degree. Uh, I've tried a lot of different ones. Uh, you know, I've done I've done the dry yeast. And I think you can make an amazing saison with dry yeast. Uh, big believer in some dry yeasts that are out there, uh, and even using combinations of dry yeast. You know, one that is, you know, known for known for having phenolics, and one that's known for not having phenolics, and blending those can make a great beer. Doing one that's just known for phenolics can make a great beer. This beer in particular was made with a single kind of isolate uh, that I did prop up in tank. Uh, and then, you know, it, it is POF positive. It is STA one positive. And, and for me, I think the one thing I would say for yeast is if you're going to use yeast or if you're going to use yeast, if, if, if it's one thing that stands out about the Saison yeast is that it, it probably needs to be a diastaticus yeast for me, uh, and, and have phenolics too. So POF positive and have you know, phenolics and be diastaticus just because it, it adds just this different element of beer. And possibly that's kind of back to the farmhouse uh, rustic roots of it too, where the yeast that we're I'm using and that we're using in these beers are, you know, as close to wild yeast as it could be without calling them a wild yeast. You know, uh, I think in a lot of people's breweries, especially people that, you know, specialize in, in brett and mixed fermentations, some people are more scared of the diastaticus than they are of Brett, you know, uh, and, and it's just a scary thing to kind of have around, but it's also a really cool and unique yeast to use in these beers. There's definitely some downstream, especially if you're packaging, you know, and some some careful steps that you need to take around that. I know yeast researchers now are focused on finding Saison yeasts, or at least in, in part, you know, focused on finding yeast, Saison yeasts that work in a familiar way, but without that diastaticus component. Um, I mean, thankfully, there's lots of yeast research going on in varying ways. Interesting to see where that will end up and what will result in commercially available yeasts from that. Um, you know, but nonetheless, let's, uh, let's, let's kind of finish out. So you, you, uh, your fermentation then ends up basically go ripping quickly and then petering off into like a long three week tail of very slow fermentation as that, uh, that strain continues to just, you know, micro ferment, uh, everything that's left in that. How do you then, I mean, you, you know, you, you're tracking these fermentations, you're watching very small changes, uh, almost indecipherable changes. How do you then determine, you know, when it's done, when you are happy with where it has gotten to, um, you know, and what is the difference between say two weeks and three weeks as you're sampling, um, you know, from, from these fermenting tanks? Sure. So, um, you know, it, it is, this is a hard one, I think, because it's depending on how familiar you are with the yeast you're using. The yeast, the particular yeast I use for this beer, I've used quite a lot. And even though it's diastaticus, I'll get hints on this one, it doesn't tend to go all the way down to like a Play-Doh. It usually stops pretty repeatedly around two Play-Doh. Uh, and that was kind of the goal I had in mind, saying like, okay, like once we get close to that two Play-Doh mark, I know it's, it's about there. You know what I mean? It's probably about done for what it's going to do. Uh, this beer in particular, the, within the first, you know, 
two days of fermentation, we were down to three Play-Doh, right? And then to go from three Play-Doh down to two Play-Doh took a full, to drop that one degree Play-Doh took a full two weeks, you know, and, and it really just slowly chews away and slowly works through and it's just slowly chewing. And usually I'll, I'll test it and I'll, I'll give it like, okay, I'll test probably like on a Monday and a Friday. If I test it on a Monday and I test it on a Friday and it's the same and it hasn't moved at all, then I'm like, okay, we're there. And it's around that theoretical amount that I expect it to be at. Then I know we're really close to where I want to be. And that's when I start to kind of like decrease temperature. Uh, for this particular beer, I had kind of a goal in mind of kind of what I wanted to do with it. And again, that goes back to kind of like your game plan in the beginning. I know I, I knew I wanted to make three unique products out of this beer. Uh, it was a 15 barrel batch. So I knew I really wanted to make three beers out of it. One was going to be, I wanted to dedicate two bear, two barrel, two barrels of this beer to bottle conditioning and doing two barrels of bottle conditioning. Uh, and that's, you know, the, in the end, like that's the most beautiful version of this beer is the bottle condition one that you can give a lot of carbonation to. I wanted to dedicate about eight barrels of the beer to draft for our tap rooms and outside accounts. Uh, and then I wanted to also dedicate another like three barrels of this beer to a beer to cupage. So I wanted to make a, a blended beer out of this and use an old sour with a fresh saison. And I wanted to create a unique product out of that by by doing three different things with it. Uh, and for me, once I started to get to that like three weeks, three and a half week mark, I'm lowering the temperature. I've got it down to like 60 degrees now. That is when I'll usually fill my bottles for bottle conditioning. Uh, and I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll use my priming yeast and sugar. Uh, and I definitely do the old tried and true Bob, Bob Silvestri method uh, that everyone knows about, read about. It's great. Uh, and I, I use that method to prime yeast. Uh, and I usually just fill kegs and then fill bottles from kegs. Uh, and I, I dedicated two barrels of that. So at that point in time, you know, we're three weeks, three and a half weeks in. I fill two barrels of bottles. And then from there, I fully crash the beer. Uh, I bring it down slowly to, you know, 31 degrees. And I'll hold it there for at least a month before I really think about touching it again. Uh, the goal behind there is just kind of like an extended lagering phase. It's something I kind of, you know, read about and picked up before, but I really feel like the beer cleans up itself, uh, a lot, a lot of the rough edges kind of get smoothed off through this lagering phase and I'll leave it in there for three, for four to six weeks to lager before I think about carbonating, force carbonating and packaging it for draft. Uh, and my goal there is just to let the beer naturally kind of clean itself up, clean itself up. A lot of yeast is going to drop out through that time. And I'll just say it kind of, it's just like a lager, you know, after your primary fermentation of lager, it, it, it's ready. The beer's ready, but that lagering phase is it really cleans that beer up over time. And I think you can really lager a Saison the same way. Uh, it, it really creates a unique beer if you give it the time to to clean itself up and it and it highlights the really fun things and some of the more bubblegummy aspects may kind of fall out you know that's kind of with the yeast and you're really going to have this really great spice pear expression meets your grains meets your hops uh and you're going to have a more streamlined i think uh succinct beer that's fascinating to me to think about what like what 
how do the flavors convey then? I mean, obviously with those kegs, you're not, you know, bottle conditioning in the same kind of way. And so you are still trying to accomplish a cleanup process through this longer lagering. But then, you know, the rest of us haven't necessarily been able to do it, but you have. How do, what is the taste expression in, say, the bottle conditioned version, uh, that two barrels that you push out into that side versus this draft that has now also had its own kind of lagering experience for, for a good month? Well, you know, it's it's a good question to ask because I, I should clarify it. I also lager those bottles. So I'll, I'll, bottle, oh, okay. con- I'll, I'll bottle condition those bottles for a couple of weeks. Uh, usually two weeks is, is what I give it. And honestly, bottle conditioning done it like really quick, like a day or two. It's probably carbonated. We just give it two weeks at about 70 degrees just to cover your bases. And then I'll put those bottles in the walk-in cooler and, and I'll let them sit for three weeks a month themselves. Uh, and by the end, that beer that was, you know, in the tank cloudy and, you know, had a lot of yeast and suspension, by the time you're done pulling it out, you know, that beer's pretty clear, you know, uh, at least your first pours are going to be really clear until you get kind of into the bottom of the bottle. Uh, the difference between those beers is, you know, really carbonation is, is the huge one. Uh, and I, I think really that's what makes this beer so unique and fun. And that's why, you know, the bottle condition version is, is always the best is that, you know, you're pushing three plus volumes of CO2. It's, it's more like just this really effervescent uh, champagne, bitter beer that you're drinking. And then the draft version, you know, you're lucky to get 2.7. If you go beyond 2.7, it's hard for your draft system to handle it. So it's it's a different beer. It's definitely tastes a little bit more estery and almost tastes sweeter too when you have the draft version without that really effervescent blast of carbonation. Uh, but both of the ones, however I treat it, even though it's a different roadmap to get there, they both get lagered in a way. And, you know, that's back just from like reading, you know, the old farmhouse sales book, you know, it talks about a lot of different processes and this isn't a new process. Like if you read that book, there's a lot of people and even Cezanne DuPont, you know, they'll bottle condition it, but then it goes and sits and does, you know, like almost like a third fermentation in the cold box where they just let it sit and clarify and it happens faster in the bottle uh, than it would in a keg or wouldn't a, a fermentation vessel. But it's still, for me, an important step of letting that beer kind of clean up. Sure, sure. Fascinating and really interesting. So I assume then that the competition version that you submitted was the bottle conditioned version? Yeah, 100%. Would also um, support that idea of safety through transit and packaging and, uh, um, you know, potential long life there. No, very, very cool. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about then, um, some of the other Saison, you know, like this coming out of this kind of base approach to classic Saison, you also have won medals for these other expressions, dry hop Saison, um, fruited Saison. Where do, you know, you mentioned earlier that as you're thinking about kumquat Saison, you vary hops in order to highlight some of the fruitier characters, lean into, you know, some of the flavor notes that are part of that intention there. Um, are there other, you know, recipe changes that you make to some of these beers based on how, you know, wh- where you are, what the ultimate intention is to take, you know, this Saison, whether again, that's dry hops or, or whether it's, uh, you know, Brett conditioning and down the road. Yeah. Yeah, so for Air is Beautiful, uh, the approach that I kind of changed a little bit on that one was I used spelt in that one and wheat and rye, and I kind of increased all the percentages on that one just a little bit. 
Uh, with for the Brett beer, it's like, okay, well, you're you're adding a little bit extra for the Brett to work on, kind of a secondary metabolite for it to kind of chew through. Uh, and Brett is by no means my specialty in terms of being a brewer. I just kind of know some rules and, you know, I've, I've read a decent amount about it, but I, you know, it's one of those things for me when I'm making a Brett Saison, I say, okay, like, let's go ahead and add a little bit more wheat or let's add a little bit more spelt to give it a little bit more chew. So instead of sitting at, at like five to 7% would be my goal on a classic Saison because it's not really known for being weedy, so to say. You know, I'm closer to 15% on this Aries Beautiful, you know, and and that beer in particular, you know, I'm looking at, you know, a little bit more rye. I was using more of a traditional rye, so it wasn't quite as spicy as the one I was using for uh, Kalal, which is that local Abaruzi rye. That one's got a lot more spice to it. So I used 5% rye, I would say 10% spell, 5% wheat, and then the rest uh, Pilsner malt for Aries Beautiful, knowing that, like I said, I'm going to add Brett to it and that Brett is going to further dry this beer out and is probably going to work on those specialty things and the, the other metabolites that those specialty grains and rustic grains bring. Uh, and that was an approach I took on Aries Beautiful. Uh, from there, instead of using more traditional hops, noble-like hops, you know, I leaned in on Centennial and Citra. I was like, okay, like I really want to see what happens. Uh, and this was more of an experiment for me when I add these more American West Coast hops to something that is more, tra- you know, that is doesn't usually have that, knowing I was going to add Brett and kumquats to it, that I just wanted to lean into that citrus flavor. And again, I think the note there being harmony. I'm just like, okay, I just want this to be harmonized. So, for that beer, I use Centennial uh, at 90 minutes, Centennial at 10 minutes, and then Citra at Whirlpool. Uh, and again, like I don't shy away from those Whirlpool hops. I think if you were to have the beer, uh, you wouldn't know that there's Citra in it. You know what I mean? By the time it gets packaged and through all the aging and fermentations, it kind of gets pushed through the wash or it's harmonized with the other flavors. Uh you know, I think if you were to put Citra in something like Kal-El, the classic beer, I think it would be way out of whack. And you'd be like, wow, that's not cool. Like, I don't really like that flavor with all these other flavors. But for this beer, it just played in for the end goal that I was looking for. Sure. Makes sense. Are there other any other iterations of Saison um, that you particularly like uh, exploring? Or on the flip side, are there some uh, of your experiments within the Saison realm that have not worked out as well for you or not produced, um, you know, some, some things that you won't go back to that you've learned from. Yeah. I think, uh, I think dry hopping Saison is an interesting one to talk about, uh, because it, it really can turn into an awful beer. Uh, <laughs> and, sure. and, I, and I don't know exactly if other people have experience with this or not. So I don't want to put my foot in my mouth, but depending on the strain you use, if you dry hop a Saison, it, it could turn into just a bubblegum festival. Uh, I mean, Juicy Fruit down Main Street, it's in it, in it, it's not a great flavor, uh, but that does go away with time sometimes. And other strains, I know people have better luck with. So I think, you know, experimenting with strains is fun and maybe saying like, you know, I really recommend that. I think it's fun if you're going to brew a Saison, uh, that to do a couple of different fun things with it, 
to see what works and what doesn't work. Uh, but dry hopping saisons can either be really beautiful or absolutely awful. Uh, and I, and I think it's, it's hard to tell it's really based on yeast strain, but a lot of times you will just end up with this just bubble gummy mess. Uh, and that fortunately, if you do let it age, so that happens to you, giving it some time in keg or in time in vessel and like further lagering it, it kind of mellows that out. But you just have to be careful with dry hopping would be my thing, I would say. And it's also really fun though, uh, in that I've done one that was really nasty with, with the dry hop, gave it time, it cleared up. It actually turned out pretty good after giving it, you know, almost two months. Uh, but then I also pulled a portion off and added bread to it. And then all of a sudden the bubble gum was gone and it turned into just like this really beautiful beer that you could kind of tell was dry hopped, but maybe not because the Brit had had its re-fermentation on it and had done all these other things to it. So I think that's something that is both fun, uh, and can be a little bit dangerous, but yeah, I think the thing that I think I really like about this and that you and I were talking about before we started recording is that there's just limited limitless opportunities that you can kind of uh things that you can do with this beer style you know there's not a whole lot in the style guidelines of what it's supposed to be other than if you're making a classic saison you know you kind of look at the north star of saison dupont and maybe a blague spear or something like that or even a french saison you know some people like french saisons a little bit more uh but yeah i'm, I'm kind of really love that you can experiment with it and and really give it a go and have fun with it. And the one thing that I, I think I've kind of harped on here is that, you know, knowing your intention, uh, knowing what you want to do with it, uh, but also giving it time is really important for a beer style like this. And, and that's just my humble opinion. I think a lot of Saison got a bad name for people that were probably putting it out in like two weeks. Whereas, like I said, I, I'm putting these beers out and I usually say at least two months, you know, like just give it time and you're really going to be rewarded with the beer you have, but you've got to give it some time or else it's not really going to shine the way you want it to. Speaking of time, our time is is getting long here, and it's probably this is probably a great note to bring this to a close on. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality service and reliability with 24-7 service and support. BSG are the U.S. distributors of Gambrinus Malting, Canada's original small batch artisanal malt house. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends in your next craft beverage. AccuBrew helps you detect problems before they ruin a batch. ProBrew has rotary can fillers in stock with a two to four week lead time. Omega's thialized yeasts bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. If you're a pro brewer, request your free sample today from the perfect puree and $3 per pound ordered of the YCH Pink Boots blend will be donated directly to the Pink Boots Society. If you've enjoyed this podcast and any others, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. Um, we are in our best in beer season, and a couple weeks from now, our best in beer issue will be out with a feature package on Saison, um, which is why it is top of mind for us right now and why I love having this conversation in this timing. Um, Jeremy, if people want to learn more about Protagonist, learn about not just the Saisons that you brew, but also all of the beers that you brew at Protagonist with this heavy bent on taking classics and putting a contemporary spin on it, where where can they learn more about uh, Protagonist? Uh, yeah, protagonistbeer.com is a great place. Check out our Instagram, uh, Protagonist Beer. It's the easiest way. Uh, right now we're distributed mostly around Charlotte. So if you're in the greater Charlotte area or if you know someone that's around, like, 
please encourage him to come by the tap room, grab some beer and send it to you. Uh, I, I think that's the easiest way right now. And, you know, just, uh, yeah, come by for a beer, you know, and I hope you take something from this podcast. I think it's really fun to talk about something I'm passionate about. And, you know, it's something I'd love that if everyone was making just great saisons and that way everyone would drink great saisons. So uh, big shout out to anyone that's really making them. I think it's a great style to keep in mind. Uh, you know, I think there's so many different iterations and so many different things you can do with it. And, you know, don't worry, don't shy away from it. Uh, and then also, if you want to sell it, maybe don't call it a Saison. Caper <laughs> uh, not wrote a great story on that for our brewing yeah. industry guide uh, for all of you subscribers out there, for sure, for sure. We joke about it, but right, you know, these flavors and these beers connect with people, um, even if the name may put some people off. Uh, that is absolutely the case. But what a beautiful part of our brewing tradition and so great to see it. Um, resurging in the way that it has. I mean, the whole style was almost dead, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And now, now here we are. Um, let's not let it die again. Um, Jeremy, save a bottle of the bottle conditioned Kal-El for me. If you've still got one around, I'd love to, uh, uh, to, to try some of that. And thanks for talking with us about Brewing Saison. Cheers. For sure, Jamie. Thank you for having me. And I'll uh, save the bottle for you. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.